Cause we're the Houston Oilers Houston Oilers Houston Oilers number one Yes, we're the Houston Oilers Houston Oilers Houston Oilers Hello, everyone. You're listening to a very special post-NFL trade deadline episode of Battle Red Radio, where we'll talk about that and we'll answer some of your listener questions left over from last week's game after the Texans-Ram, after the Texans-Rams game, as well as your listener questions after the NFL trade deadline. Um, but to recap the trade deadline, nothing really happened today. Melvin Ingram was traded from the Steelers to the Chiefs after he was upset about the amount of playing time that he had. And the Texans traded Charles Amenahu to the San Francisco 49ers for not a 2022 six-round pick, but a 2023 six-round pick, which beats out a 2024 seventh-round pick that they received from Mark Ingram. And I think this trade deadline is really indicative of you know, like a lot of the problems with the Texans this past offseason this year, where it was obvious that it was time for a full rebuild to pull the plug on everything, to start anew, and instead they were stagnant and decided to opt more to fix the culture of the team, you know, turn the bottom half of the roster, create some idea of competition, whereas at the same time they just handed out jobs to friends of theirs like Rex Burkhead and Danny Mandola um, and those sorts of things. But by turning the roster, the idea was that, well, if we sign these guys, they'll have a good season for us. And if we're bad, we can only slip them for draft picks or it can factor into our comp picks of next year. And, you know, like a lot of these guys have just been you know, terrible this year. They've been bad in a bad defensive scheme. They haven't made an impact at all. And they've also been playing out position. And so, like, you have these guys who signed with Houston to be able to kind of resurrect their careers and be insured a good chunk of playing time. Like Desmond King, who didn't play at all last week, he moved from a slot corner who's good in zone coverage to an outside corner. He's been terrible. You know, since the Buffalo game, he's been benched there for you know Vernon Hargreaves and Terrace Mitchell. Um, you see Charles Menu was traded, who is an interior pass rusher who's moved to the exterior, who really hasn't done anything at all at that spot because he doesn't have the speed to bend the edge and against tackles with longer arms too, like his arm length, his rushes, his his long arms, his rips, they don't work as well either. You know, from that position too. And you have, you know, Ty's Hauer playing at left guard instead of right tackle. You have uh, Justin Rehab playing strong safety now because Lonnie Johnson Jr. is not playing free safety. Terrence Mitchell had a bad game last week. And so you have these guys that you signed, and rather than just like signing good players or signing young players with the upside of some sort of like future potential, which doesn't exist, exist with a player like, you know, Desmond King, they sign these older veterans. and. Not only have they been, you know, out of, out of spots in a lot of these places, but they just haven't performed very well. And so if you sign bad players, this is what happens, you know? You don't get anything for bad players to be traded at the trade deadline if you're not making moves at all. And and so I'm not really, I don't know, I'm surprised they didn't cut bait with more players that maybe they could got something for, like Malik Collins or, um, or Justin Reed even, if he's not part of their future plans at all. Brand Cooks, you kind of thought, but it seems like they kind of talked him into you know, staying here for the long term. And I also think, too, if they trade Brand Cooks this year, they might as well just forfeit it because he's the entire of their passing offense. 
But it just kind of goes back to show, like, Nicky sure had a bad offseason. This idea of, like, signing veterans so he could flip didn't work out at all because the veterans are bad and you're not going to trade, like, a fifth-round pick for Terrence Mitchell whenever he can't play man coverage at all whatsoever. And you're not going to trade a, you know, fourth-round pick for Desmond King whenever he's been completely opposition, even if you are a zone-heavy de- defense as well, too. And so it kind of left Houston just kind of stuck, you know, and, you know, you would think for a 1-7 team, a rebuilding team needs draft capital, there'd be more of a fire sale, but the fire sale didn't exist. They were, you know, really just kind of a bad spot. And I guess I'll just say it again for one more time. When you have bad players, teams aren't going to trade much for them at all. And regardless of what your idealistic ideas were this past spring, they they failed, they didn't work out. And now the Texans are going to go into next, de- next season, turn out the bomb half the roster again. But hopefully at least this time they'll trade down the draft, collect more draft picks, cast a wide UDFA net, sign younger players with some potential as well too, and actually kind of go all in on this rebuild. And obviously the Deshaun Watson trade will take precedence to that too. Um, Watson was in trade today, and I'm glad to see that. You know, if you're not going to get the, the haul that you need to make it worthy trading him, there's no reason to do so. Uh, the Texans are better off playing him, paying him not to play then, you know, making a quick decision for him to go somewhere where you're not getting what he's worth at all whatsoever. And I also think, too, like, after another year, you know, we're nine more weeks away from the season being over. More teams are going to be desperate for quarterback play. And it happens every year. It's going to happen again next season. I also think, too, with Watson having to sit out for an entire year, he'll be more apt to accepting a trade to a different team instead of it just being Miami, Miami, Miami. And so I think it opens the door for the Broncos or the Giants or, you know, a team like that for him to want to uh, maybe make a move as well next season too. So I think they're, they'll be able to get better offer next year than they were able to get this year. I think the, the court stuff will be cleared up hopefully a little bit more by then too to kind of have a better idea what you know, could come with that in the future too. But I am like glad that Nick Casario didn't make a quick decision that they didn't trade him to Miami for, you know, the Niners first round pick two first-round picks in 2023, and uh, and Salvin Ahmed instead of Miles Gaskin. So at least that didn't happen. So going here to the listener questions, the first one's from at Shandy Ben, and he asked, what is the best indication of how well the new culture building is going? The empty seats, the seventh consecutive loss, Desmond King being a healthy scratch for disciplinary reasons, Brandon Cooks' Twitter or other. I'm going to go with the empty seats, and it really is, it's kind of one of those things, like some of the stuff you can kind of, you know, block out, like even for a bad team who, who loses seven games in a row, they can at least say like, well, you know, we're, we're rebuilding, we're going through, you know, rust batch, this will be better in the future, you know, this is just the adversity that we have to overcome for a good football team. Um, Desmond Keeney, healthy scratch, I guess it was for disciplinary reasons, he missed a team activity, so I guess King didn't want to go to the team barbecue this weekend. And that's why he was uh, a healthy scratch last week. But he hasn't, been, he hasn't been very good. And the Texans played a lot of cover three last week. They play a lot of cover man, cover one man. Um, they play a lot of coverages where he's been bad in those positions too. So they didn't really miss him very much as well either. You know, Cook's Twitter, he said during the telecast, I guess, that, or his announcement during the telecast, they talked to the Texans for an office. After they trained Mark Ingram, he came, a well, you know, he came back around to it. And he also stated that, well, you know, I watched the Warriors rebuild and it'd be very special to be a part of something where we go from the bottom to building something good again. So 
I hope Cooks is able to be there whenever that happens in the next, you know, two or three years, however long it takes. If Nick Harrisario is able to, you nail the Watson trade, the trade, the draft capital goes along with it, the players they select with it, and be able to make the Texans um, a good team again before Brandon Cooks is, you know, 34 years old. But I think the biggest thing about the empty seats, though, is like you can't turn that off. Like if you're the owner of the team and you look around and nobody cares and nobody's, you know, the whole the whole stadium is parse. It looks like a a yard for a new subdivision, you know, before the grass seeds will be laid down. And in the only stuff that's there actually, you know, weeds in there and a lot more of the other team's fans too. You, know, you can't turn that off. Like it's there, it's visible, it's right in front of your face. And so I think of all the things this year, just the empty seats is the best indication of the culture where the team has been. And uh, and like Cal McNair can turn his cell phone off. He can not, you know, sign a Twitter if he has a Twitter, which I hope he doesn't. But whenever he's at the game itself, he can't turn off the empty seats. Our next question is from at Confused Lefty. He said, if the team goes 1-16, would David Coley be fired? You know, I, I think it's in play. And, like, I think a lot of stuff with Coley, too. You know, he's been so bad this year in, like, really basic spots of the head coaching position. You know, just from not taking penalties when they should to not going for it when they should to kicking field goals when they shouldn't. And uh, and everything else, and he just looks like he's the middle of the tr- he's in the middle of the trenches at the Psalm whenever he's there on the sideline chewing his gum and frantically you know looking around too. But I guess the idea is like if you're Houston, if you cut Coley, if you fire him, like will a, a good head coach want to come here? You know, would a good head coach want to be like, well, there's only 16 of these things. I'll subject myself to you know whatever Casario and Eastby want to do roster-wise, not have a whole lot of impact in that and stay here. And, you know, that's kind of the big question. It's like, if you fire him, are you going to get somebody with, like, any sort of caliber at all that could work in use and build the next good team here? And maybe Coley was just here for, like, a one-off season to keep morale high. And that's kind of the question. But I do think, like, it'd be worth it to fire Coley. Like, I love him. He's a beautiful man. He loves nachos. And I love David Coley more than he loves nachos. But he's just been so far, like out of his out of his mind, uh, trying to run this football team. It just hasn't worked out you know, very well at all either. But I think you kind of have to cut bait if you are one in sixteen, and and it'd be different there one in sixteen without these like elementary issues, and they keep happening over and over again. And your offensive scheme is is good, and your defensive scheme is good, but you're losing close games, and the talents there, whatever else, and it isn't. It's not like they're losing games like the Lions have this season. They're just getting you know, stomp with David Mills in the quarterback position. They haven't done much to help him out there either. His next question is, if you had to keep one secondary player from this season to start next season, would it be Lonnie Johnson Jr. or Vernon Hargraves? You know, I think I think at this point, I would have to go Vernon Hargraves because at least, like, he's quiet about it, you know? Like, Hargraves is bad, but at least he's, like, just kind of bad and and noble about it. Like watching Lonnie Johnson Jr. make a tackle on and a gain they on an eighteen yard gain and get in the other player's face and, you know, look around and everything, like it's just kinda of sickening. You know, he missed five tackles last week. He was he failed stable on top of a deep post route in Houston with Vernon Hargraves in that deep reception that Vance Jefferson had last week too. And I mean he has the Tyron Matthew brain, you know, where he's punching at the ball instead of going for tackles and let the guy carry him, and then get mad whenever he gets pushed around. He gets mad when somebody gets blocked, blocks him to the whistle. He gets upset, you know, whenever he misses a tackle like 25 yards on the field. 
Uh, he yells at his teammates whenever it's obviously on him making mistakes in coverage too. And so I, at least Hargraves is like kind of quiet about it. And if they're going to be bad anyways, I mean, I can't believe I'm saying this. I think I'd rather watch Hargraves, you know? Um, and we know like Johnson Jr., like I've been talking about him since he was drafted in 18. Like he was a bad cornerback in Kentucky. He's been a bad cornerback in Houston. He's been a bad safety here too. And there's like not really anywhere else to put him. And I was kind of hoping that if Houston did play a cover two or cover three defense like they've been playing this year, that they would put, give him a chance at corner again where he could kind of be physical, where he could press receivers to the line of scrimmage. And even then, they haven't even given him a chance to do that. So I don't know where else they're going to put him at all um, going forward. The next question is, which performance is worse this season, Buffalo or Los Angeles? And I would say for Davis Mills, it was Buffalo. For the offensive line, it was Buffalo. Um, Josh Allen was like, he made like three really good throws and really kind of picked on Lonnie Johnson Jr. against Buffalo. But I guess I'd say the LA game because the thing about the LA game is they didn't force any turnovers. And also like the Rams really didn't do anything like crazy, like as far as like, their, like the plays they made, you know, they were just smarter than Houston. If you just watch their run game, just like how many times the cutback was open against them, how many times they're able to just bounce outside and there is two defenders in the same gap, and there is nobody there to keep contained at all. Um, offensively, you know they their run offense was awful. They ran like eight different run plays, and they couldn't block either of them, any of them at all. They kept trying to run screen passes that don't work at all. They tried to run that quick boot, and it was nearly picked off by Jalen Ramsey. Um, the only play they really hit on at all was you know two plays on play action, which has been kind of a given, where they were able to hit Collins off of a. Uh, able to hit Nico Collins off a deep in off play action and get that slam before the half too. But I mean, it's just been, it was just putrescent. And like, at least against Buffalo, like it was windy and it was, it was rainy and the weather was bad. You can point to some of that, you know, but this one like at home <laughs> indoors and to just like get beat by like the pocket being collapsed and Philip Gaines just wrecking your entire defense. Like it wasn't even Aaron Donald. It wasn't even Leonard Floyd. It was Philip Gaines that was crushing against Justin McCray. Uh, McCray. And so like, that's, I think, the biggest difference. I'd say the performance against Los Angeles is worse this week. The next question from him is, if Ty God Taylor wasn't due to come back next week, would Davis Mills be close to being benched for the third choice? So I, I still don't even like, even if Taylor is healthy, I don't really see the point in playing him, you know? Like, you may win two or three more games, and you're playing him just for, like, pride's sake. So that way you beat the Jets. But if you beat the Jets, it hurts your draft position. Or if you beat the Jaguars, it hurts your draft position. And, like, it really doesn't matter. You know, like, Tyrod Taylor shouldn't be in your future plans at quarterback unless you draft a rookie early this year. And, you know, you want to <laughs> you kind of go through the same thing all over again, except it's a first-round pick next time. But, like, I'd rather just have Davis Mills be out there. And, like, I know the Texans are unwatchable. I know Davis Mills has been bad, but at least like, and I think Davis Mills is bad. You know, like I, I understand there's some problems with the offense and everything else, but the same players with Tyra Taylor were able to be, you know, able to score points against Jacksonville and keep it close against Cleveland in the first half. The same players with Davis Mills haven't been anywhere close to that. And the Texans are now 31st in offensive DVOA, 32nd in you know, run offense DVOA too. And so I, I think even if, if ta- despite all that, I think even if, Taylor is healthy, you're better off just playing Mills and at least being able to make a decision for next year saying, look, he's not it. We'll keep him here as a backup. We'll keep him here as a, a third string developmental quarterback. 
Um, but we're going to roll with, you know, rookie quarterback X. We're going to roll with a different veteran or because Tyrod Taylor can't stay healthy enough at all. So if you do keep Taylor as your starting quarterback, you're going to do the same thing all over again next year. So I think that'd be a better plan, at least giving like the kid a chance to to have more chances to fail out there. So you can't really you know what you're going to get into next year. And so I kind of said this offseason too. Like I was hoping we'd see like eight starts from Davis Mills this, this year because you can't really glitter a turd of eight starts. And so we've seen seven from him so far this year, or I guess we've seen six from him so far this year. And he's been awful in all of them, except for the New England game where he made three throws. He hasn't made, you know, again this year too. So I would be, I would rather watch Mills out here than watch uh, Ty God them. The next question is from at Father's House, Texas. What happens if Watson gets an indictment from the grand jury? We get nothing for him. Texans story could get worse. There are doomsday scenarios because this organization is a mess. And I don't really know what would happen if he was indicted, you know, by a grand jury. I don't know enough about the legal portion of it. Um, I don't. I don't. Yeah, I don't know exactly what would occur. And even if like the civil case is enough where he loses his civil cases, I don't know what would happen if, if that happened as well too. Um, it's kind of a weird thing where like you're trying to balance a future thing that nobody knows anything really at all about what, how the NFL's investigation process is going to go because it's separate from the legal process. And then even how the legal process is going to go, what would happen if, you know, Watson sells this outside the court too. So I don't know, but there are cases where, yeah, like this could happen where (laughs) Houston doesn't trade Watson at all, uh, despite being like the right move at the moment to hold off until next off season. And then he gets suspended. And then they're not able to really get anything at all for him in a way. Maybe you get like a second round pick for him two years from now because he's been suspended for a year. And like that's in the realm of possibilities. And, you know, as we always say on the show, like every time you think there's a bottom, it can get deeper. And uh, I think Watson being suspended for like a year or something and crushing all of Houston's trade value of him would be probably about as deep as it can go too. Our next question is from a good friend of mine, Greg. He asked, Question for the mailbag. Would you rather see this FO draft your next quarterback or acquire one via trade? Is the loss of a quarterback rookie contract worth it to minimize the risk of the sprint office making another bad drafting mistake? You know, and this is a really, this is a great question. And I think the biggest thing about, about this is like, it depends on where you're at. You know, I think you're better off trading for a veteran quarterback if you have other parts set up, you know? like what we saw with the Rams trading for Stafford last year and the Colts trading for Wentz this year and trading for, uh, and then gave Philip Rivers the year before that. Like if I think trading for a veteran quarterback makes more sense or like a young, like you're quarterback who's had some problems only if like you have pieces around there too, because you're getting a guy who's either like failed in some sense before, or you're trying to make a playoff push, you know? And so like if the Texans were to trade Garoppolo, they'd still have an awful offense next year. If the Texans were to trade for, I don't know, Kirk Cousins or Baker Mayfield, they'd still have a terrible offense next year. You know, they don't really have the talent around it to be able to help, like, a, a borderline, like, franchise quarterback be able to have a really good offense just because the talent's in here at all. And so, like, a lot of quarterbacks you get in a trade, they usually have a lot of, you know, things that go along with that, whether it's age, whether it's durability, whether it's a lack of mobility, whether it's a lack of big play throwing ability, um, they kind of hamper them from that. And so without having other pieces in play, you're kind of just treading water if you are to, you know, trade for a quarterback. But like that being said too, like if you do miss on a quarterback, then you have to go through the same thing 
you know, three years later or, or you're using another tr- uh, top draft pick on a quarterback. And then you're just kind of the hamster wheel over and over again, hoping that you finally, you know, find one. But the worst, you know, case scenario is what the Texans went through last decade where you kind of plow through veteran quarterbacks and you try to convince yourself you don't need one. And then you go all in on one in free agency and it doesn't work out. And, uh, and then you eventually trade for Watson. That was, you know, what really kind of changed him around last decade. But I think just like going through bad quarterbacks is worse. And also um, having a quarterback who's like below average that you keep sticking with, that you try to convince yourself into being that quarterback. It's probably the worst case scenario. And so like we saw it happen in San Francisco. Um, and they decided to try and get Trey, Trey Lance, who's been you know, really bad this year. We saw that with the Rams and Jared Goff, who they were able to turn him into Matthew Stafford. Um, we're kind of seeing right now the Cleveland Baker Mayfield. I think to a certain extent we saw Kirk Cousins, but Kirk Cousins is now you know underrated at the moment. And like with Cousins, it was more about well they turned Case Keenum into him, paid him the big contract, lost some uh, defensive players to go along with that, and they were set up right away. But he was just so bad against pressure and was able to create thing on his own that uh, they you know, missed the playoffs the year after that happened too. So I do think the Texans are a spot where trading for a quarterback doesn't make much sense, signing a veteran quarterback you know, make sense as a stopgap, but, you know, I think that you have to take a quarterback early on next year, and, like, even if you don't, unless you're, like, obviously, there's not one that you love or whatever, um, but I think if you have, you know, two top 10 picks, you have to take a quarterback and maybe make your first pick the defensive from Oregon or the corner from LSU or whatever, but if you take a quarterback, then that spot, at least, like, you have a shot at it, and then you kind of know what you can do going forward with it, and then you kind of get off of it in a year or two if you need to, but I think general managers are kind of hesitant now too to take quarterbacks unless they like are all in and love them because if you miss up on the quarterback position early on the draft, like that's what you're kind of staking your entire you know career to and GMs usually don't get multiple chances and so for Casario, he's staking his career to the Watson trade and then after that he's doubled down a quarterback and uh, those are two big decisions to make too, but if you if you decide not to take one early next year, and you rebuild, and you take a bunch of top talent uh, early on the draft, maybe it all works out, and you have like an okay team going into that year, and then all of a sudden you're picking 12th, or you're picking 8th, and now you're outside the bubble getting the quarterback that you want, and they, now you trade up more draft capital to get one, and you're kind of stuck there too. So I'm always in the, in the mindset that if you're able to take one high, and you need one, and there's one you, you like, you should do it. Even if, you, even if the quarterback you like is only... You, you like him a little bit less than the offensive tackle that's available, you should take the quarterback. And so I think for the Texans with a quarterback class, it's like seven guys deep that nobody really feels strongly about just yet. Um, I think going into it at the moment, like you'd still look to take one next year at a minimum, and that'd be better than, you know, taking somebody else. But I think going along with what he's saying too about the current front office, trust him to take a quarterback. You know, it's a valid point. Like Nick Casario, the quarterbacks they took when he was in New England were, Garoppolo, who's bad, Brissett, who's bad, um, and now they're, and Mac Jones has been like, what I think Davis Mills' ceiling is, you know, currently at the moment, is like a rookie year, Mac Jones, who's been able to like win with his mind, and he's like an accurate passer, gets the ball out quickly, but he wasn't even part of that, you know, decision to take Mac Jones this year, too, and so I really don't even like Nick Casario's track record from a personnel standpoint, either, you know, it's not like the Patriots have been some incredible drafters the past three or four years, that team was pretty talentless whenever Tom Brady left it. And we kind of saw that last year watching Cam Newton quarterback them and even watching <laughs> Brian Hoyer quarterback them a few times too. 
Um, so yeah, I think like what what you can expect from Casario is kind of part of it, but I think you still have to take one regardless of that. And you know, Casario has a lot to prove right now, um, considering his offseason last year, where he came from, New England, and just what the Patriots looked like before he left too. Our next question is from at Confused Lefty, and he asks, "What will it take for Nick to regain your confidence as our general manager going forward?" I think the first thing is like not trading Watson makes me feel you know good because it was the right decision decision to make holding on to him instead of you making a quick deal because Kyle McNair is uncomfortable or the Dolphins want this move made right now or the NFL is putting pressure on him to get rid of Watson or whatever else just like it was the right decision not to move him today and so like, that gives me more confidence going forward but, like really it just kind of comes down to having like a cohesive plan and signing good players. And, you know, last year he didn't have a cohesive plan. The contract restructures were insane. I still think the decision to sign all the veterans they did was crazy as well, too. Um, I didn't really see the point of the season aside from to fast forward through and see what you would get from for Watson going into it as well. And, uh, and yeah, like it just kind of comes down to taking good players and having like a unified strategy. And so like right now the Texans don't have any cornerstone players at the moment. Like, I mean, I, I guess you'd say Laramie Tunsil, but the Texans are better off trading him than keeping him. But all across the roster, on both sides of the ball, there's not a cornerstone, cornerstone player there at all. And so they really are just kind of like an expansion team at the moment that need to completely restart everything. And, you know, again, if they have three top 10 picks in the first round next year, that's a great jumping off point. And if they hit those picks, then maybe they can be good in by 2024 instead of at the end of this decade too. So. You know, it's kind of simple. Uh, football is very complicated, but sometimes it can be simple. Have a, cohesive, have a cohesive plan, take good players, and you know, that's what matters. Uh, the next question here is from Ad Houston Diehards. What is the prey route going to be for Casario, who is being lauded as great for doing the obvious thing? Should a statue be 750 feet tall or 1,000 feet tall? Uh, I love this, especially because you're just bouncing off the previous question of, you know, what would it take for Casario to give me some more faith in him? And it was keeping Watson. And, you know, as Chris joked around, like, yeah, that is the bare minimum. <laughs> like, that's where we're at right now, where the bare minimum is just don't do the dumbest thing in the world, which is Trey Watson before you should do it. Um, and so now, now going off of that, like, I'm glad they didn't do it. And yeah, I think he should, he, I don't think he should have a statue built because those things are too permanent. But I do think we should all wear electric blue sweater vests uh, on Friday in, con- in congratulations for Nick Casario for doing the very obvious thing at the trade deadline. Our next question is from at Smooth Grandmama. I always, I'm going to say it's at Smooth Grandma. I don't like at Smooth Grandmama very much. Uh, or at Smooth Grandmama. I don't know. Which young player stands to gain the most bent from veteran? Check notes. Charles who being traded away. Bill O'Brien. So for this question, um, yeah, it's it's weird because who was benched earlier in the year and he wasn't really rushing the interior at his good spot. You know, last week they put him at defensive end and he had a lot of awful stunts. <laughs> like just like really clunky. Um, just some I mean, just some gross stunts where he really wasn't going anywhere. He did slant side of a gap and almost make a tackle for, tackle for a loss on Sony Michelle. But then Michelle carried him for three yards on second and three to convert anyways. He had like a all right swim move that created pass pressure, but didn't get to the quarterback either. But now that he's not playing on the edge at all, it just means that you're going to see more Jacob Martin 
who was awful last week, um, who needs to be playing for a 3-4 defense as soon as possible. And I guarantee you that Jacob Barnes ended up signing with Carolina next year to replace Hassan Reddick in free agency. Once he signs a big money contract someplace else, it leads to more snaps for Jonathan Greenard, but it also leads to more snaps for Jenkins at defensive end. It leads to you know more snaps for Demarcus Walker playing more out there after he's played a lot of defensive tackle this year too. Um, but yeah, it's just kind of it's kind of slim at those spots. But Omenehu wasn't playing a, a whole lot at the moment, and he's playing mainly on the exterior too. So I think it just leads to like yeah, Greenard and Barden are our edge defenders for the rest of the year, and we'll see what they can do at it. But yeah, like next time you watch the Texans play, watch. Martin, whenever he's on the strong side of the formation, playing the six technique, and it's rough. It's some of the rest, some of the most rough football you'll see for a 245-pound guy having to play against double teams and trade blocks against tackles and tight ends, where he just gets crushed pretty easily. There. His next question is: Bill Bryan once trade away a seventh-round pick for a future sixth. Outside of the Roby trade, has Casario got more value than that out of any trade? <laughs> Uh, this is really funny too. I don't remember whenever O'Brien traded away the seventh round pick for a future six, but yeah, like that was kind of what I was talking about this year too, Casario, because it's not like he traded a whole lot of he created a whole lot of draft capital this year, and like the draft capital isn't a balanced ledger. You know, you're not trying to even out to have seven picks every year. It's okay. You can have more picks than you're uh, selected to have going into the draft. You know. You can have 13 picks. You can have 17 picks. There's no limits to the number of draft picks that you can have. And so, like, what he did was he turned Bernard McKinney into Shaq Lawson and turned Shaq Lawson into a six-round pick. He turned Randall Cobb into a six-round pick. He turned Whitney Merciless into a six-round pick. He turned Bradley Roby into a third-round pick and then a six-round pick. He turned Manahu into a future six-round pick. He turned Mark Ingram into a seventh-round pick. Um, he may trade for Anthony Miller. He may trade for Marcus Can. That was pretty much a, a pick swap. He traded for Ryan Izzo. He traded for Ryan Finley. Um, so like he ended up with more picks pulled in than he put out. But still, some of the decisions that he made push picks out didn't make all much sense all, uh, either as well too. But yeah, going back to this one, I I mean the Ruby trade he made it because they did have King and Hargraves and Mitchell on the roster, and they've all been bad this year. Uh, but like for like a lost season or whatever, if you're going to get a third-round pick for Roby before the year, before you could have a down season, like that was a good trade, and it kind of signified like, hey, we're not going to be good, we're, we're rebuilding, but it was like the only move he did that, and by the time he did it, it was already after the entire offseason, so it didn't match up very well. Um, but yeah, I'm going to go with, uh, I'm going to go with no on this one. And if it'd be different if he didn't restructure Winnie Merciless and he didn't restructure Shaq Lawson before trading him because those they don't really acquire any cap space next year by making those trades. And uh, I would say Randall Cobb maybe, but Cobb was traded because the Packers were dying to have him because Aaron Rodgers loves Randall Cobb and Cobb's been you know, all right for the Packers so far this year. The next question is from King Jamie and his Twitter handle is at JM. His Twitter handle is at J4ML1N. And he said, if we lived in a vacuum where baseball didn't exist, where would Davis and Nate Mills rank and most exciting players to watch in Houston? Well, I, just, I don't know much about the basketball team either, but I think of all the the players the Texans have to watch um, on the excitement level, I would put him 
I put him somewhere. I put him. So, I put him around Charlie Heck. I probably actually put him lower than Charlie Heck. Because Charlie Heck's fine. He's a really bad run blocker, but he's okay in pass protection. Um, I don't know. I think I put Davis Mills last. Like all of his all of his throws last week were in garbage time against backup players, and they're just running like the same five routes over and over again that he's able to throw, and that's it. And the run game's so bad too, and they don't check any plays the other direction. They don't make any audibles to the line of scrimmage at all. They're running against big boxes, can't block everybody. Uh, and you know he really has like the Taylor was kind of making the Texans like a feel good hit, but it was still Nick Casario's fault. They didn't have a backup plan for him. But Davis Mills has made the Texans unwatchable. So I'm gonna say he's last. Davis Mills is the most boring player to watch in the city of Houston right now. And I don't see it getting any better too as the as the year goes on. Our next question is from at found of HOU Sports. Is Mark Ingram still invited to the David Coley cookout after we go two and fifteen? And this is also saying that they're gonna beat Mike White and the New York Jets. And, you know, we don't know if that's gonna happen either now. Uh but yeah, I think so. You know, this is a family. The Texans are are more than a football team. They're a family. They love each other, they care a lot about each other and now, you heard David Coley talking to Mark Ingram earlier this year on the sideline. He said, we love you. We're so glad we have you in this team. You know, we need you here. And Ingram said, I love you too, coach. And now there he is in New Orleans where he can love Sean Payton. He can fall back and love a Sean Payton again too. But yeah, I think Mark Ingram will be there after they go to him 15. Now, I don't know if Charles Amenahu will be there. I don't know if Randall Cobb will be there. I don't know if... Uh, Shaq Lawson will be there, but definitely Mark Ingram will be there. His next question is, also, how many Hail Marys for Cooks and Lonnie for using curse words on Twitter? Um, Lonnie Johnson Jr. said a derogatory comment to uh, John McClain saying he looked like the KFC Colonel, which was, you know, rude. Uh, and then Cooks, you know, said the S-H-I-T word after the Texans traded, after they went ahead and traded Mark Ingram to the New Orleans Saints. And I mean, I guess they're Christian, so they're not really Catholic. So I guess they don't do that. You know, I guess the punishment is more, I don't know, I guess they have to pray a lot, you know, and really, really think hard on the mistakes they made um, to feel better after, after making poor decisions like this. Yeah, if this was a Catholic team, I think 15 would be good. You know, I think 15, and then I think every single time they reflected back and had that same thought like that, it'd be another 15 so they can get, so they can push those, Wicked, evil thoughts out of their head, too. And so our last question from tonight is from a member of the masthead at Houston Houdini. And he asked, this team is a known commodity. With the draft seemingly being a mixed bag of quarterbacks, Mills establishing what he is, and Ty God's uncertainty, uncertainty, what kind of team are you hoping to see next year make games watchable? Yeah, I mean, this is a, a great question, too. And, you know, this is why why we do this. You guys have incredible questions um I think for the Texans next year like the one thing that's been driving me insane is somebody who loves offensive line play and just watching the offensive line like I just want to watch a Texans team with a good offensive line again it's been since 2015 when the Texans had a good offensive line Ben Jones has been in Tennessee since then Bram Brooks has been an all-pro since then, and his career is kind of coming to an end because of injury, injury history um, after tearing his pectoral again this year, after tearing his knee the year before that. Derek Newton's no longer in the NFL. Dwayne Brown's still kicking it. Uh, Xavier Sufio has played for both Dallas and Cincinnati since then. 
um, and is on, I guess, team number three at the moment since he played for Houston, too. And so I just want to watch an offensive line that's good. And I'm so tired of watching them run, you know, split outside zone, have it not work, and pulling Jordan Aikens to the backside, but having it not matter at all whatsoever because nobody cares about Jordan Aikens. Nobody cares that he may leak out into the flat and uh, it may break one tackle and gain three yards after the catch. I'm so tired of watching them, you know, run outside zone and help back on the defensive tackle instead of, you know, taking actual zone steps and get to the second level. I'm tired of watching these double teams that don't move anybody in the first level at all. I'm tired of people pulling without any sort of, like, violence to the point of attack and just kind of, like, flopping into them and sitting there. Um, I'm tired of these, like, awful, awful angles they take at the second level as well, too. And pass protection is the same thing. Like, they just have problems picking up blitzes. And Jaron Christian was fine last week. Charlie Heck was pretty good. He hey he missed Leonard Floyd once on like a leaping chop rip that where he showed his hands too early. Um, they gave him a sack, but most of the pressure came on the interior. It mainly came from Philip Gaines just working. You know, Justin McCray throughout that in the interior. Aaron Dahl had a big beat on uh, sharping for another sack too. But I just want to watch this team. That's fun to watch in the offensive line and like get rid of everybody. You know, like I don't want to watch any of them. Trey Laramie Tunsil. You know, Justin Britt's hurt again. And which was expected after a guy who's been hurt the last two years. You know, release him, release Max Sharping, uh, or try to try to trade him for a future six round pick if you can. Give us a 2025 six round pick for for Max Sharping. And you know, Tyus Howard blocked me on Twitter, so you can trade Tyus Howard for a third round pick. Um, Charlie Heck, you know, he can stay on as a swing tackle, but he can't be in the in the starting roster anymore. Give me a whole new offensive line. Give me what the Chargers did this past offseason to rebuild their entire offensive line offseason and not have it like crush their entire resources or liquidate their entire future to do so. That's what I want. I want a good offensive line next year. And if I can get a team that you know, run blocks well and is able to run one run play well, that's all I care about at this point. Like I, I'm just like watching the Rams offensive line today, just it was a lot of fun. Like I'm very happy for them. And it's crazy they take, you know, David Edwards in the sixth round, he's the success that he is. And Whitworth's out, and they've no bloom out there at left tackle, and they don't have to worry at all whatsoever. And they're starting, you know, their center who weighs like 275 pounds, and he's locking up Christian Kirks in the second level without any problems. And they lose Roger Saffold, and it doesn't matter. And Rob Havenstein's still a baller. And Corbett, like, gets benched and comes back in certain games and always has success too. And so I just want to watch the offensive line again. And, um, uh, and after after all these years and the past few years and all the investment and the coaching changes, it's still bad. And like it's just time to get new players there at that position. If I can get that, I'd be fine with with a lot of everything else, you know. So that's our week nine mailbag episode. And we did have one more question, and it was, "What game should I watch next week to not have to deal with any of this dirge from?" Uh, from last week again for the Texans. And so we do have a a preview podcast every single week with my good friend Taylor and I. My own personal favorite game this week is going to be Cincinnati-Cleveland. And I say this because Cleveland cannot tackle at all whatsoever. <laughs> that was kind of the questions about their defense with you know a lot of the speed that they have, but they couldn't really tackle that well, and especially in secondary. Like Delpit's been, been ta- has been a bad tackler replacing John Johnson. Both their corners haven't tackled very well, including Newsom. 
know, greedy doesn't tackle all that great. Um, Anthony Walker's had, you know, he's been a good tackler, but he still has had some misses sometimes there too. But just in the second year, they can't tackle. And they're playing it's a like a quick passing team for the Chiefs that, you know, likes to throw screens, especially to uh, Ozuma. They like to throw you screens to Mixon as well too. And uh, and it's kind of like a like a must win game for Cleveland where they've gone from Super Bowl contender week one against the Chiefs to having Baker get hurt. And also just like Baker being an offense where if it's not open for him, he's not hitting it. And, uh, and his pocket presence has been bad and everything has to be designed for him too. They're like, if the Browns to make the playoffs this year, they could move on from Baker. And maybe they're in the Watson sweepstakes if he agrees to a trade there too. Maybe they trade up and take a quarterback as well next year. So I think like at Cleveland 3-5, and five, that probably kills it for them. And uh, I can't believe they're going to allow Pittsburgh to come back and, and make a playoff run. Or sneak into the playoffs, maybe too, after losing to them last week. But I do think, like, just watching Cincinnati's defense play as well as it has, and actually have the talent to match the scheme, and how much fun their linebackings play been with a bunch of young players in those positions. Um, watching Reader go up against Cleveland's offensive line has been a lot of fun too. And just like watching my tackle Nick Chubb is going to be good. But I think it's a must win game for Cleveland. And, uh, and there really just isn't like a lot of great games this week at all either that, um, you know, without Jameis Winston's voodoo and the injury problems for Arizona, San Francisco, and Derrick Henry not being there for Los Angeles, this is kind of the the best game that we have uh, this week. Unless you want to have like fun watching Carson Wentz throw interceptions against the New York Jets. But anyways, watch Cleveland, Cincinnati. Listen to the preview show on Friday morning. Uh, until next time, I'm out, Weston. Thank you for listening to Ballard Radio, and thank you for I guess being on tonight. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. I thought it was pretty-